Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. In this episode, I speak with Grace Wang, the author of Soundtracks of Asian America. Now- Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. In this episode, I speak with Grace Wang, the author of Soundtracks of Asian America, Navigating Race Through Musical Performance. A conversation examines the role classical music plays in immigrant families and how the embrace of classical music by Asian Americans have created and reified a number of racial stereotypes. We also discuss how the creation of YouTube enabled some Asian American artists a way to escape those stereotypes, and how some artists look to China and Taiwan as performative spaces which could offer more artistic freedom. Along the way, we talk about a number of musicians, including Midori, Wang Li Hong, Daniel Choi, the LA, LA Boys, and even Sai. Hello. Hi. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you decided to write Soundtracks of Asian America. Well, that is a good question. It's one that I have myself asked (laughs) myself when I was writing the book. And I think in retrospect, I really saw how it was a way for me to understand different aspects of my own life. And so music, you know, in some ways played a large part of my um, part of my life when I was growing up. I started playing the violin when I was five, um, and I was very serious about it um, and pursued my music training very intensely. Um, And so in some ways, you know, I was aware even when I was growing up that there were a number of large numbers of Asian Americans who were involved in classical music training, but I didn't really have a context or a critical lens to think about why that was or even think about the meanings of that. Um, For me, the question really was like, you know, did I want to pursue music professionally or not? It was a question that I kind of went back and forth on. And when I started graduate school, it was in American studies. You know, I really felt like that part of my life about music was completely behind me. Um, I, I went to graduate school really intending to study literature. I was interested in kind of um, questions of resistance and oppositional politics. So things about like classical music seemed really at odds with my kind of intellectual interests at that time. And I would even say that there was something that felt a little bit, I don't know, embarrassing about classical music. It seemed like Asian American involvement in classical music was such a stereotype or it um, was not oppositional at all, I guess. Um, But I guess, you know, in some senses, we return to the things that, you know, trouble us or nag at us. So I ended up writing in my dissertation. Part of it was on Asian Americans and classical music. And I was looking in some senses for another kind of music genre in which Asian Americans were equally visible or had a kind of presence. And I didn't feel like I could find that. So I ended up writing um, the rest of the dissertation was on musical tropes and kind of like literature and poetry, which was kind of my interest anyway. Um, But I think in some senses, um, by the time I was writing the book, the landscape had changed a little bit. Um, Like YouTube, you know, kind of was started in 2005. Google buys it in 2006. And I think by like the following years, you start to see this kind of visibility of Asian Americans on YouTube, Asian American singer songwriters on YouTube. 
I really credit my students for, you know, pointing this out to me. And in some senses, I think um, I wasn't always looking in the right places, too. Um, like I had a very kind of national focus um, in terms of looking at Asian Americans. Um, and I think once I started to look transnationally, I really started to see like the ways in which Asian American artists were going to, quote unquote, homelands abroad to pursue kind of like dreams of pop music stardom and in some senses to achieve it as well. So that's my kind of long answer <laughs> to I want to follow up on one thing that you talked about that that you um, experienced a lot of what you're kind of describing and analyzing. Was it a challenge for you to sort of bring an analytical vision to what you experienced and even maybe some of the choices that your family made for you around music? You know, that was a struggle definitely that I contended with. And I think when I first started writing about classical music, even though it's a scene that I know very well and it's a... Uh, you know, and I know I still, you know, I had a lot of friends that were um, classical musicians. You know, I, I made it a point to talk to people that I didn't know. Um, I didn't want to really involve my family <laughs> in my analysis. And I think in part it was to try to create a kind of distance. In the same token, like I should say that I didn't really do that because I ended up talking to parents at Juilliard Free College. This is where I myself also went to as a student. Um, and that I think in some ways it's both an advantage and a disadvantage. I think like anthropologists talk about this a lot and other people who work on oral interviews to be both an insider and an outsider. I think that for me, it was about having a distance to understand how people who didn't know anything about classical music, in some senses, understood that music form. And then to think about how they understood the place of Asian Americans within that music form. And I think that that's a site, Asian Americans, you know, in classical music, I think it's a site in which there's a lot of kind of kind of glib or superficial kind of perceptions, maybe, about their involvement. So for me, it really was a kind of uh, challenge to think about, you know, what was the complexity in the narratives that I was hearing. So one of my favorite quotes uh, about race is from Adrienne Piper, who's a visual artist, and she says that race is a visual pathology. And in your book, you really kind of turn this on its head, or you kind of rethink about it, or you reevaluate it, and you talk about, um, you know, race as being sort of an oral uh, pathology, perhaps. So can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Um, yes, I do think that there's a way in which we, you know, we listen with our eyes, we hear what we hear, we want to collaborate with what we see. Um, and I think in that sense, you know, race enters like our the ways in which we listen. And often it's, I think, in these um, underlying ways that we're not even necessarily aware of. So I think that there's a number of studies that show how like the race of a performer can impact what we hear. And so that, you know, say um, it would be a, say a woman playing the flute versus a man um, or certain kinds of gendered instruments, they would be rated their performance differently based on, you know, what they saw um, or that uh, uh, um, someone playing music that is, kind of associated with African-Americans, say, spirituals, if it was a black conductor um, conducting this group versus a white conductor, even if it was the same music that was being heard, you know, they were being evaluated differently. And um, people actually rated their musical um, performances differently just based on the race of the performer. So I think in some ways you see that um, playing out for the experiences of a lot of the um people that I talked to, the musicians that I talked to, um, 
their experiences in terms of making music. And so one, you know, one instance that I can remember is there was a classical musician, a violinist, an Asian American violinist who I was talking to. And she was saying that, you know, um, there's a way in which the same kind of trait of um, being technical or sounding kind of like uh, um, very technical in your playing can be coded differently based on your race so that she would hear like when she was in Europe, she would hear like, oh, white Americans are so athletic in their playing, you know, but Asians, you know, that same kind of playing would be said, oh, they're so technical. They're so disciplined, right? They're so practiced sounding. And I think that there's in that case, you know, it was really about um, drawing on the kinds of perceptions that might one might have about these different groups and then in some senses coding it into their playing. And that in this way, our racial presumptions can be kind of like self-fulfilling prophecies for what we hear. It seems to me as I was reading this, that it seems like there's been a real renaissance in classical music in Asia and in, among Asian Americans. Can you maybe explain why that has happened? You know, I think it's a convergence probably of a, a number of different actors. Um, I think that, you know, if you think about the place of classical music in Asia, it's really um, related in many ways to, you know, the circulation of imperialism. And I think um, in the book, I talk about how it first emerged in Japan, you know, during the Meiji era, era. And I think there's a way in which in different kind of East Asian um, nations, classical music emerged as a kind of sign of modernity. And it was a marker that um, these nations were, you know, like a, a modern Western nation in some senses. And so classical music, I think in some senses, right, booms in, in this in this way. And you see um, it's becoming um, increasingly popular right, in in these nations. And I think in the same token, um, a lot of Asian, we can think about the um, immigration of Asian Americans to the United States, particularly in the post-1965 era. You have a lot more kind of professional and um, educated immigrants, you know, who are coming under those immigration categories. And they're bringing with them that these kinds of presumptions about Western classical music as representing these certain kinds of markers of kind of universal elite culture um, or something like that. Um, and when they come to the U.S., I think there's a way in which um, they're experiencing downward mobility in some senses, or they're not necessarily seen as, um, you know, like elite or culturally sophisticated in some senses. And I think that that in some senses have led a lot of the, these um, immigrants to enroll their children in classical music training. So you see this kind of com convergence and starting in the 1960s and 1970s, um, when you have a lot of um, Asian international students coming to study um, classical music in the U.S., um, as well as like the children of these immigrants, a second generation kind of entering these music schools. And I think in that sense, you start to see uh, larger numbers of Asian Americans and Asians um, enrolling in classical music um, starting around that period in the 1970s. In the 1980s. So how is this changing um, classical music um, from how it's changing the training to maybe even the performance? Well, I think in some senses in the United States, we have what, um, you know, 
a number of people bemoan as like the death of classical music, or it's not really the death of classical music. I think it's been proclaimed many times, but I think there's been um, less kind of attention to music education and the public school system and all these kinds of factors that I think, you know, attribute to like fewer audiences for classical music and, you know, like a fewer students who are pursuing this training. So in some senses, I think there's been a specific recruitment of Asian um, students and especially from China, but other parts like Korea and Taiwan or um, other parts of Asia. And I think that alongside with this intense interest that um, immigrant parents, Asian immigrant parents have in classical music training, I don't know if it's really changed um, the actual performance or education, but I do think it's changed in some ways um, how it's perceived. I think that, you know, there is a way in which um, playing a classical music instrument, especially violin or piano or strings, you know, is seen as, you know, almost an Asian kind of cultural practice. And I think that that's interesting to think of in relation to Western classical music, which is also this, you know, marker of European you know, high culture, right? And so I think in that sense is you see the ways in which these ideas about ownership and authenticity getting played out in this in this field and in, in these different ways now with this new kind of demographic that's increasingly present in classical music training. And so I want to ask that theme of authenticity. <laughs> and so how does authenticity play uh in discourses about classical music? Well, you know, I think with all of these, there's, um, you get a complex um, range of answers. You know, when I talk to Asian American musicians um, and also Asian musicians as well. Um, And I think that in some senses, um, the discourses have changed. And so for, for a number of like, I would say older musicians, um, not old, but like, you know, 40s, 50s, um, I think they would talk about how they've really seen a shift um, from when they um, when they started. There's this sense that like, you know, if you're Asian, you're an Asian or an Asian American musician, didn't matter. You're seen as Asian. You know, you're you don't have a kind of passion or understanding of the music. You're merely technical. You're disciplined. You work really hard, but you don't understand the music because I think there's a sense that that the true understanding comes from those who um, are of European descent and that this music, you know, really is associated with whiteness. And I think that, that its cultural capital lies on it, but also its authenticity, you know, of its participants with, is coded with whiteness. So I think that Asians are in some ways, you know, seen at odds with that. Um, I think that, you know, what happens um, is that the discourses become a little more coded, um, you know, by the 90s, 2000s. And so, and so like, you know, I remember I was talking to the violinist um, Midori and she said she, she would hear these like, you know, really kind of like coded questions, like or coded um, compliments, like, oh, why does it sound so innate for you if you were raised in Japan, you know, like, and so she understood that to be a kind of compliment, right? But it made her kind of exceptional in some ways. And it, you know, was resting on a number of assumptions about how Asians played. And she also noted that, you 
you know, in Europe, they were less kind of, they would just be very blunt about it. You know, it's like, oh, you're Asian, but you can play in this way. It's so, you know, and, um, you know, um, all, you know, it was much more kind of um, explicit. So I think that um, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> what was it? It was about the authenticity. Yeah. So I think that these discourses um, still play out for Asian American musicians um, about these questions of their authenticity. And I think that particularly for musicians who were coming from Asia, they still bring with them those questions of like what it means to be authentic as an Asian violinist or an Asian classical musician. Um, But the other thing that I would say is that in some ways, they're not as salient um, because there's so many Asian Americans and Asian classical musicians who are so, you know, so wonderful in their playing. They're so passionate. They're so, I mean, it's hard for these stereotypes to still, you know, hold weight in quite the same way. So I think like you have a lot of these like changing ways in which these discourses are being um, played out. But the one thing that I would say is that, um, there is a way in which sounding Asian in classical music, whatever that means, whether it's, you know, sounding like a wooden or practiced or, you know, technical um, or not quite understanding the music fully. I mean, the sense about sounding Asian is always used as a kind of critique. And so and I think that in that way, it's still these questions of authenticity, you know, still hold weight. Right. Because um one has to somehow transcend their racialized body, you know, transcend the visual markers of their Asianness, which I think, of course, Asian American musicians do very well. Um, but I think there's still that kind of um, that kind of presumption that's um, held in classical music, and I and I would say that it is a very um, it's a kind of tradition. I mean, it's really rooted in kind of like tradition and pedagogy. And <laughs> um, and so that it is a field that has been slower to change. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that in some of your interviews of, with musicians, you, you heard them using some of these critiques uh, of themselves or other Asian American musicians. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about that? I think that um, the it, there was a kind of um, struggle in some senses to think about like how these stereotypes played out. I think that in classical music, in particular, with its high representation of Asians and Asian Americans, there's a lot of like beliefs and stereotypes about Asianness that gets bandied about. And I don't know if it's necessarily about their playing. It might be about their personality. It might be about the, you know, the this the international students who are you know interested in just status or things like that. So I think that there was always a lot of these questions about like, you know, what does this Asianist bring to classical music? And at the same token, I think in their training, um, and in, I think definitely in kind of discourses about classical music, there's a sense that it's, you know, that race doesn't matter. It's a universal, you know, music form, anyone can play it. And so I think that there was always this kind of tension that was being played out. And I think that it's hard with um, critiques or stereotypes about of Asian playing that you will hear in classical music still, that I realized that, you know, in some senses, like 
odd, you know, you can hear them in some of the playing and then you want to think about like, well, why is it that I'm, you know, coding this playing in this particular way? And so I will point to myself, right, as someone who, you know, was very immersed in music training. And I think like, um, and I'm very critical of the ways in which race operates, you know, in these arenas. And that when I was in China, I myself, I realized that I had a kind of expectation of a kind of playing that I would hear that it surprised me, you know, in terms of like, why I would have that, you know? Um, so I think there was a way in which I expected a kind of more technical playing because you hear about like, you know, Chinese musicians, they practice all the time. They practice so, so hard, all of these hours and stuff like that. So I definitely expected these musicians that I heard. Um, I was listening to musicians at the Beijing conservatory, which is their kind of like elite music conservatory in Beijing. And I realized that I was expecting their playing to be like just technically superb and maybe last a certain kind of passion. And, you know, I really had to stop and think um, in terms of like how deeply entrenched these ideas are. And they're entrenched in some ways because I think they map onto these existing, you know, kind of beliefs or stereotypes that we have about Asians more generally. Well, this is a kind of a great segue into talking about how really the internet and YouTube um, really has given an opening or a space for um, Asian American uh, musicians to maybe put a different face in 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 music. So, um, how did uh, YouTube change things for for some musicians? Okay, so I think that you know. YouTube really did, in some senses, transform the landscape for Asian Americans. Um, I probably started to see how much that was um, by listening to my students. I think like I was teach classes on music and popular culture. And a lot of my students, particularly Asian American students, would start talking about these artists that I had never heard of. It'd be like David Choi, Wong Fu Productions, Clara Chung, you know, and the kind of passion that they expressed for their fandom, you know, that surprised me. And also the ways in which they were talking about their fandom, they would be like, Oh, you know, David Choi, I, I just want to live in his music. I, I just want to, you know, um, you know, like live in his lyrics, his love songs. And, you know, and I really relate to him because he's kind of short and he's not even that good looking. And so it seemed very interesting to me, like why they were expressing like their fandom and also the, the passion that they were expressing for it. And the fact that these were musicians that I had no idea who they were, these were video producers that I had no idea who they were. So in some senses, I think it was, um, uh, it's, it's these young um, people who really kind of showed me like, Oh my gosh, what an exciting place that YouTube was for allowing this whole range of young Asian Americans. I think a lot of these people who are posting videos were in high school when they started. So they were pretty young. Their fans were even younger. Um, we're posting these videos that were really, you know, in some ways, much more freeing in terms of the kinds of representations, the ways in which they could express themselves. Um, and so I think that it wasn't in many ways, especially in the early years of YouTube, a democratizing moment for Asian Americans. It allowed a lot of them to kind of represent themselves the way that they wanted to be represented, you know, to show a kind of everyday diversity that, you know, you didn't really see in um, mainstream popular culture. 
So a lot of like the Asian American YouTube musicians that I ended up interviewing for the book, you know, they talked about themselves growing up in a media landscape where they didn't really see people who, you know, reflected their interests and their values. Um, And talking about, you know, how hearing from their fans about how affirming it was to find musicians like them who in some senses, you know, reflected some of their own interests. What kind of music did they play? Um, Because it really wasn't classical music. Right. Um, So, you know, it's interesting. A lot of these um, musicians that I was talking to who were popular on YouTube um, had some classical music training. Um, They either played the violin or the piano when they were growing up, some of them. Um, And so it was interesting for me to think about how this music training might have given them some of the tools to kind of explore different music forms. And and in fact, a lot of these musicians talked about how classical music really boxed them in. They didn't feel like it really expressed who they are. So the the group that I really focused on were the singer songwriters. A lot of them were doing kind of like acoustic um, singing. Um, In part, I think it's because YouTube lends itself to that type of music making, you know, like it's, it's easy, especially in the early year, you know, early days or early years of YouTube to just turn on your video cam, you know, start playing the, um, you know, start singing, you know, or playing with your guitar or even the piano. Um, so I think that a lot of, um, these kinds of musicians, they were kind of like singer songwriters, you're, you know, covering some of the most popular songs on the charts and then doing some of their own original songs as well. So, so you also talk about how um, the fact that they were on YouTube allowed um, there to be this community that got built up. So you would go to a concert and all these people would, would find their YouTube fans at the concert and how it created community, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, I think that you see this community first coalescing online. Um, and I think there's a way in which these um, these young people were really savvy in terms of how they use social media. And I think there's a way in which YouTube really is based on, you know, collaboration. You click on the, these links, you kind of, um, you know, um, work with other artists. And so there was a kind of like community that was building online. And one of the things that I found really striking was how much these artists collaborate with each other on videos, doing either covers together or singing duets or, you know, or even just appearing in each other's music videos as, you know, the protagonist or, you know, different, um, you know, parts in the background. So in some senses, I think this helped to coalesce a kind of community online um, and a kind of community online with their fans. And then, um, you know, you do definitely start to see these artists performing together in concerts as well. You often in kind of like Asian American showcases or in college campuses or in different venues like that, it would be a kind of Asian American showcase of, of different performers. Um, many of them who are popular on YouTube and then a lot and allowing their fans to, um, have a space to come out and meet them. Um, and then usually these concerts, you know, involved a lot of meet and greets afterwards, um, you know, um, opportunities to kind of like converse with um, the artists. So I think that there was this really kind of like vibrant community that you start to see both online and offline as well. And I think this kind of helps us kind of transition to uh, one of the later chapters of the book where you talk about um, an artist, Lee Holm Wang, who was... Uh, 
a second generation or first generation immigrant to the U.S., um, but then becomes a pop star uh, first in Taiwan and then in China. And I thought this was a fascinating discussion of how um, sort of the, the space open for Asian American musicians um, isn't just a United States thing, but it has a global effect. Yes. You know, I would say that um, one of the things actually just to um, say something a little bit more about the YouTube is that, you know, I was conducting my interviews probably like around 2011 with a lot of these YouTube musicians. And I think that in some ways, this feeling of the democratized as, um, you know, the, the democratized kind of access that YouTube provided was already fading a little bit. I think that there was a sense that, you know, it was being kind of tied up with more corporate interests. I had to, the videos had to be much more professional looking. And I think that there was a sense that it was harder to just be, you know, someone who had a passion for music, right. <laughs> to start posting videos and finding fans online. Like there was this high, much higher bar that had to be passed. And so I think in some senses, what I was documenting in the book was some of this kind of optimism about the early years of YouTube. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, you know, I think there's this way in which they were, they were feeling like, you know, it's much harder now um, to even find an audience on YouTube because there's just so many more content producers and so many people, you know, so much more competition, um, in terms of that. Um, and so in some ways it was interesting that even some of these, um, musicians that I was talked to, um, that I interviewed for the book, you know, in the course of writing of this book, you know, they themselves moved to Asia, you know, to kind of look for other kinds of opportunities. And I think that this is probably related to, you know, like two different things. Um, one, might be the kinds of uh, racialized barriers that they might feel in the U.S., um, continue to feel in the U.S. And I think the other is, you know, this really changed landscape of, um, of Asia in some senses in the last, you know, obviously in the last decade or two decades. I think you see this um, real vibrancy in Asian popular music, you know, people are familiar, of course, with K-pop or Korean pop. I've, I um, talked about um, Chinese pop in in the book. Um, and I think that you, you see, you know, this really kind of um, vibrant transnational Asian popular music scene growing. And I think that in some ways, Asian American musicians, you know, especially those working in pop, start to think of these um, kinds of pop music industries as sites in which they might pursue kind of um, uh, pursue their music in ways and in sites where race might not um, play as much of a factor. I mean, other factors play, you know, ideas about how they belong in those, um, you know, landscapes definitely play a large part in it. So Lee Hong Wang is um, a really interesting and fascinating, I think, figure. He's second-generation Chinese-American. He grew up in Rochester. He didn't even really speak that much Chinese when he was growing up. Um, and he goes to um, Taiwan. That's really where he um, begins his music career and is now one of the most popular music stars, you know, in the Chinese popular music landscape, you know, in kind of China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and rest of Asia. Um, and I think he really shows in some senses uh, the kind of level of fame that is possible if we look outside the U.S. It does. Um, being an American-born Chinese, uh, especially in the case of like Wang, how does that get read when he goes back to Taiwan or China? 
You know, I think it's, um, I think that that's really changed. Um, and one of the things that I, I track in the book a little bit is, um, you know, the kind of changing perception of Asian Americans or Chinese Americans, or as they're often seen, like, quote unquote, ABCs or American born Chinese, um, when they are in Chinese contacts. So I think that you really see this shift um, from like, in the mid-90s, um, there was a group called the LA Boys, and they were a trio of Taiwanese Americans um, who were really like the first kind of group of Chinese Americans to kind of break into that scene. Um, and their, you know, their image was really like this kind of, um, y- you know, like, oh, they're, they're American. They, um, they have all of these kinds of, um, ways in which they like to play basketball. They're, you know, good at school. They, they have all of this access to American popular culture. And I think like they were always like somehow on the basketball course or doing hip hop or something like that. But it was a really kind of, I don't know how to say it was, it felt a little embarrassing. I was actually living in Taiwan for a year during that time when they were like climbing the charts. And I think it was a real kind of sense that like just being American in itself represented a kind of uh, source of capital, of cultural capital. Um, But I think that, you know, in some senses, it was because of this memory of uh, Asian Americans and how they were represented in the Chinese pop music scene that that made me kind of disinterested in kind of following the changes that had, you know, gone on in the, uh, in the, uh, following like 20 years. Um, so I was really, you know, when I was started for the book, when I started really investigating Chinese pop, um, I was really struck by how much that it changed. And I think in some senses, of course, it's because, you know, the relationship between U.S., China, U.S., Taiwan, you know, is is really, you know, transformed in some senses. Like there's so much discussion of China on the rise, you know, and I think even the image of Taiwan has changed. Um, I'm not sure if actually this has spread all across the nation, but I think at least in California with like when I think about myself, that ideas that I had about Taiwan when I was growing up was of like this, you know, someplace that manufactured like cheap goods, you know? And I think now it's seen much more as like a cosmopolitan place. It's a place where you can like eat great food. Um, So I think it's really transformed in some senses. And so the fact of being American, Asian American in itself is not necessarily a source, you know, just an immediate source of capital. Um, But I think in some ways, um, being Asian American carries a kind of symbol of being international or, you know, a hybrid kind of transnationalism. It's like in for Wang Lihong, you know, he's Chinese American, but he's He's also Chinese. So he's a kind of particular kind of Chinese that carries with it or is imbued with a sense of internationalism. His English, which is, you know, spoken, quote unquote, without an accent. He has um, kind of access to American popular culture, but he at the same time, you know, has to in some ways legitimate himself or prove himself by, you know, constantly talking about how proud he is of being Chinese, of asserting his kind of Chinese nationalism, cultural nationalism. He, of course, had to become, you know, fluent in Chinese um, and also fluent in, I think, the the aesthetics of Chinese pop music. I mean, I think the kinds of the, the sounds, the politics of that music as well. So I think that 
if um, for him, you know, kind of professing all of these kinds of ways in which he was Chinese, but trying to add like a quote unquote twist on it with his Americanness, I think that's what um, in some senses um, lends to some of his popularity. Well, one of the things that was interesting to me in reading the book and then doing some research is, I mean, he really presents himself, at least to, according to my viewership. I mean, he's like a sex symbol in right. China and Taiwan. And I thought that was sort of liberating, I think, um, maybe for, for him as a musician. And it maybe opened some other avenues for different kinds of songs that wouldn't, that wouldn't maybe be available for him in the United States. Is that true? I think that's definitely true. You know, um, there's a, you know, I think there's like, you know, maybe there's these uh, prevailing perceptions about Asian American masculinity that doesn't lend themselves to being like these sex symbols, these, you know, um, in the U.S., in Chinese, you know, in Chinese context, he is, you know, he's seen as like a perfect idol. You know, I think like he's seen as, you know, a super magnetic and charismatic. And I think I don't know if it's necessarily being a sex symbol that's freeing. I think it's freeing for fans to see that Asian American fans. What I would think what I think is what is um, freeing in some senses um, is that. For Chinese pop music, you know, the U.S. is such a small market that it's really insignificant. I mean, certainly there are fans of Chinese pop music in in the U.S., but the the real market uh, for, you know, this music is China. And it is a huge market. One can be a, a global pop star without ever having to kind of cater to U.S. perceptions, U.S. presumptions or, you know, and so I think in that sense, it's freeing because Asian Americans, you know, they're fairly still, I would say, invisible in the kind of mainstream popular music scene. Um, And I think that there are still kind of prevailing racial stereotypes about Asian Americans that in some ways impact how their musicianship is seen. So I think in some senses, being in a context where that is th- that aspect is not playing as much of a part in their music, you know, I think it's I think that part is freeing. Um, that's not to say that there aren't other constraints that are placed on their music making, but I do think that 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 aspect of you know that you know of uh, um, a certain kind of racial baggage that is carried into their musicianship for Asian Americans. I think um, not having some of that baggage is, is quite freeing. About Gangnam style. Um, Because my guess is that was that song out when you were writing or did that come out after you were done writing your book? Um, I have to, I, let me think about that. I think that maybe I was still doing the final edit, you know, um, when the book was coming out. And I really did think about whether I wanted to talk about um, K-pop um, in in the book. And I ultimately decided not to because I think that the the K-pop or Korean pop is actually a bit different than Chinese pop because it is much more of an export culture. So um, they are looking to audiences outside of Korea, you know, much more and to an American audience. Um, so, so I didn't actually, <laughs> I didn't actually, you know, cons- uh, write about Gangnam Style. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it was just fascinating how it blew up um, in a way that I, I couldn't remember 
um, uh, an Asian uh, song that was not in English blowing up before. And I thought, wow, this seems like it. I didn't know if it was going to be a shift or a blip. What, what's your sense? You know, I think it's a blip. I don't know what, what you think. I I think it's a blip, but I think that sometimes these blips um, place these little grooves, you know, in the cultural milieu that, you know, can lead to broader shifts that we can't necessarily anticipate. But I do think if it's going to herald a kind of a sea change. I don't think that's happening. I think that's the same thing with like um, YouTube for you know Asian Americans. I think that you know a lot of the musicians when I was talking to them talked about like you know I feel like it's an Asian American movement. It's happening online. It's really transforming how we see Asian Americans. I'm not necessarily convinced that that's the case, but I do think that there are these gradual changes that are happening. Gangnam Style being one of them, this kind of like uh, proliferation of different types of musicianship that you see on YouTube. I think all of these are kind of changing the landscape of how we see Asians and Asian Americans or even, you know, cultural products that are not in English. But, you know, I don't know. I guess I I feel like maybe the change is slower to happen. Well, well, what kind of intervention are you hoping to have with this book? Because as an aside... I'm always looking for, for new books uh, on new topics for the podcast. And it feels like I keep on seeing the same kinds of books being written about pop music. So I really think there's the, the field is really ripe for, for an intervention. So what, what, what do you hope happens um, now that this book is out there? Hmm. Well, I think that in some ways I would hope that the, I think, I would hope that the conversation shifts a little bit about the um, involvement of Asian Americans in classical music and how we interpret, especially the kinds of motivations and kind of interests of Asian immigrant parents to be involved in this music form. And I say this in part because, you know, like Amy Chua's Tiger Parenting book, you know, like that, I think, you know, entered the popular kind of imagination, you know, with like this new term, tiger parenting. And I think it just gets lumped onto how Asian parents are seen in this really superficial way um, that draws on these like essentialist views about what it means to be Asian. And I think, frankly, the thing is that I, I did hear a lot of the Asian parents that I interviewed who are, you know, enrolling their kids in classical music. I mean, in some ways they repeat a lot of the same kind of tropes that um, Amy Chua even uses. You know, she says they, you know, like I heard things like, oh, Americans are lazy. Asians, we work hard. All of these kinds of things like we're disciplined, you know. Um, And in some ways, you know, I think if you take it at face value, it sounds a little bit like, you know, this whole thing about like being a tiger parent. But I think like if you dig a little deeper, you see how they're really, in some ways, these these immigrants, these racialized immigrants are, you know, um, drawing on this language and drawing on their experience of being excluded, right, or facing downward mobility or facing racial discrimination um, and seeing their participation in music in classical music as a way to speak against these um speak against um or to hope that their children will not have to face those same kinds of issues so i think in some ways you know it's to kind of interrupt that conversation um and then in 
many other ways. I think it was just to, if it's a really kind of broad intervention, it would just be to kind of highlight the various kinds of ways in which Asian Americans are making music of all sorts. And I think that, um, and to look at the kinds of transnational landscapes that um, Asian Americans are involved in. Thank you so much for taking your time today to talk with us. Uh, Before we go, are there any other projects you're working on? Um, So I'm working on probably two projects. One is um, more of an extension um, from the book and looking at transnational Chinese, you know, and Chinese American cultural productions. um, And to really think about how Chinese Americans are, you know, positioning themselves as kind of like interlocutors between this relationship between U.S. and China. But the other project that I'm working on that I've been really doing a lot of interviews with (laughs) right now is an intellectual biography of this African-American percussionist. Um, She's she's like she was born in 1928. So she's quite elderly now, but she had this really interesting life. She was the first um, African-American to hold a major symphony position orchestra. She helped um, usher in blind screen auditions. You know, that's now common practice for orchestras. Um, And she, you know, had a very kind of public uh, tenure denial with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra that really brought to light a lot of the kind of issues of race in classical music. So I've been working on this project, too. She actually lives just um, half half an hour away from me. So I feel really lucky to have, you know, stumbled upon this really fascinating um, subject as well. Those projects sound excellent. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. You have been listening to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. Today I've been talking with Grace Wayne, the author of Soundtracks of Asian America, Navigating Race Through Musical Performance. This is your host, Richard Scherr. Thank you for listening. <laughs>